listening to our first installment of 2024 from our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, co-hosted by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, the EHFF. I'm Sean O'Conline. Aveline Fuihain is Fuihwasha Yiv Galeer. And I'm Caroline White. For this month's podcast, I interviewed four of FASTA's delegates to the COP28, which took place in Dubai in November 2023. We'll hear from Pakistani youth climate activist Hania Imran, from Teresa O'Donoghue, who specialises in public participation, from Fulbright scholar Angel Smith, and from Barbara McCarthy, who's a journalist, photographer and climate researcher. We'll go over to the interview now. I'm going to first just pass around to everybody in turn and maybe you could all just very quickly introduce yourselves and say why you were interested in attending the COP. So could I start with Teresa? Hi, I'm Teresa O'Donoghue and I'm with FASTA Goodwile now. I live in Clare and I had been to um, COP26, COP27, so it seemed like I was getting used to the whole setup. And COP28 struck a chord for me, so I was interested in going also like to see the youth delegation there and it's also useful for me tie in visit to my daughter in Abu Dhabi so there's a number of reasons I like to go but generally speaking I think it's really important for civil society in Ireland to be engaging with civil society around the world at these sort of events. Thanks. Hania are you able to join in? Yes, hello. Um, I'm Hania. I am from Pakistan. I'm an activist, a climate activist. I'm 20 years old. Uh, I run a little organization over here in my city called Youth Climate Activists Pakistan, uh, but it's across the country. Um, yeah, uh, and I wanted to join COP28 because I was at COP27 as well last year. And um, the youth movement uh, at these climate events, I believe, is uh, getting powerful and it is much needed to have uh, youth voices at these events, uh, especially because we run campaigns. And then this time this time around, we, we campaigned for uh, an equitable fossil fuel phase out to be part of the text. And so we organized protests and did all of, uh, all of the different advocacy that we could. Uh, and so I think that is why I wanted to attend COP28 to be part of that and to help with that organizing. Great. Thanks a lot. And yeah, it's really interesting for us that there's so much emphasis now on fossil fuel phase out. It's something that we're really interested in and faster too with our cap and share. And, and there's generally the need to focus on the actual sources of fossil fuel. So it's great to have that momentum for that. How about Angel? Please introduce yourself and why were you at the COP? Yeah. Hey, everyone. My name is Angel. Um, I was at COP really because I I have a policy background and um, I'm, a, I'm a researcher. And my research expertise is climate statecraft, which kind of looks at climate policy and the nexus between that and international relations and, and kind of international relations theory. And uh, I was super interested to go to COP because I thought that it would give me a great and like opportunity to have insight into how international policy is crafted and created and how these global actors come together to make decisions about things such as climate that impact everyone and how they can and sometimes cannot work together to, to achieve certain goals. Um, but then I also, uh, you know, uh, was at COP also representing Youngo and Youth Climate Collaborative. And so I, I definitely was excited to connect with other young people as well and kind of forward their initiatives and, and brainstorm with them about, you know, um, different, I guess, movements and, and actions that were happening. Finally, we have Barbara. 
Hi, my name is Barb McCarthy. I, I do climate research. Um, I've also worked with FASTA uh, last year on a European study. And I'm a journalist and photographer. So this was my first COP that I was actually physically at. I was uh, in, in Sharm el Sheikh last year, but I kind of met people, but I didn't go to the actual conference. So I was there for two days and I was quite overwhelmed. So I had uh, Teresa there, I kind of piggybacked a little bit of her and, you know, gave her some press when she was doing uh, interviews and stuff and just kind of getting to know the whole way the whole thing worked. So it was, you know, it was very impressive, the, the setup and everything like that. But there was so much happening. And I hope next time that I can stay longer and kind of get to see and do more. Great. Thank you. So maybe we could do another little round. Um, and I'd really love to hear from you what your impressions were of the actual process at the COP and what you think needs to be improved and what you think is possibly working, if there is anything. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear a little bit more detail about, about that. Well, I, as I write, I believe that the actual reason for COP itself is not achieving what it's set out to do, as in it's not achieving keep, keep and believe the 1.5. Um, it's not reducing greenhouse gases in the atmosphere itself. The UNFCCC, as it's self-mandated, is failing. But what I see happening alongside uh, the cops that are going on these years now, and, and I, I speak very much so to Hania's point about activism at the COP. What I've seen happening over the last few years is the louder civil society and especially the youth movement are, the more chances we have of having things changed within um, the policies that do come out or the agreements that do come out. But there's also other policies and other agreements going on in the background as treaties like the, as we have this year, the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, but there's also increase in Renewable Energy Treaty and then wanting to increase, um, what do we call retrofitting of houses and with the Beyond an Oil Gas Alliance. So they're all kind of happening alongside the UNFCCC process. So there's something happening. Now, they're not strong enough or they're not, there's not enough momentum behind them yet to actually succeed in what the UNFCCC want with the reduction of one point or no more than 1.5. So that's what I see happening. I see civil society playing a bigger role in it, but we also see more of the lobbyists going as well. So that's more of a reason for more of civil society to be there to, to combat their voices. So that that's what I'm seeing coming out of COP. That's my learning. It's certainly really troubling to me also to see how many lobbyists there are at the COP and that they, as you see, they seem to be getting strong. But there's also, um, as you see, the civil society presence just seems to be, from what I see looking in from the outside, it seems to be really vital and hopefully will help to swing things in a good direction. Um, Hania, do you have anything to add to any of that? Yeah, um, I think that this time the two important things or the quote-unquote positive things that came out of COP uh, have been the loss and damage facility, which at COP27 uh, a lot of people advocated for, and, and I personally really didn't think that it was going to happen. So there was a, a little happiness uh, around that because we had really, uh, really uh, advocated for that, not just at COP27, but um, throughout the year after that as well. And there have been many people that have been uh, working on that for decades. So uh, that was, I think, good. Of course, we still don't know how it is going to be uh, operationalized. But um, 
I think the fact that they've acknowledged that it is a need uh, is a success for advocacy groups and civil society groups and youth as well. And then I think the transition away from fossil fuels, that text was also, um, I mean, of course, we wanted a uh, phase out, but um, uh, at least uh, we're running on at least, unfortunately. So we were, I mean, it is still, I think, a little, a little success that that is part of the text. Um, and then other than that, um, of course, there was a lot of disappointment, a lot of tears. Um, there was a lot of uh, protests and there was um, a lot of heartbreak because, what, because of what's going on in Palestine as well. And uh, the fact that the same people that cannot uh, even call a genocide a genocide are the ones that are advocating for our futures. Uh, and then also because a lot of the the texts that they make, it's not it's not binding. So it's um, there's a lot of parties that are involved because, of course, it's a global issue. Uh, and you have so many people that are part of this conference that it becomes what you really see is that there's if there is any action, it's very, very slow. Uh, and we need urgent action. So that that is very that part is very sad. Yeah. And we uh, I have. A story to share which is one of my friends she was giving out uh, the campaign that we were running for an equitable fossil fuel phase out uh, we have these little stickers that we would put on the cards for the people that were turning cop uh, and it says not paid by the fossil fuel industry so we uh, gave those out uh, at the conference uh, and we gave it out to a european negotiator i'm not sure which country and he said you know you guys are technically uh, a lobby and your lobbyists so is it not justified for the fossil fuel lobby to be present at cop so yeah that's where we're where we're at with the people that are negotiating quite literally my present and future are the ones saying things like this where you're saying that it's all right for fossil fuel lobbyists to be part of a conference that actively influence a conference that is deciding the fate of humanity itself yeah, thank you. That is that's such a sobering story. Yeah, because uh, it just shows, doesn't it, how incoherent the well, to put it politely, the thinking is for some of these people. How they they're not. It's like inviting somebody who's well making money out of a war to be the person to supposedly bring peace. I mean, it's just crazy. It's so crazy. Um, so out of balance. So, yeah, as you say, it sounds as though the loss and damage. There was a little bit of progress on that. I hope and and the strange language of transition rather than phase out um on the surface of it it seems like to me like it's a probably a good thing but it's also just because of the language but it's also it's really what what really comes of it as you say and the fact that there are so many things that aren't binding and so on um so yeah a real uh, it's a really it's a tough one emotionally to deal with i think pass on then to angel what, what are your impressions yeah, so my impressions um, as far as the processes at COP, um, this being my first COP, of course, I can only go off of what I experienced or talking to, you know, other civil society um, members and, and uh, members of, you know, parties and delegations. Um, I would say that it seemed um, that this was a more inclusive COP as far as um, who was engaged throughout the process, whether that was leading up to COP28 and then throughout uh, the, the entire COP28. Um, I know I spoke with a lot of people from different countries within Africa um, and 
least developed countries as well and in SIDS. And folks seem to say that this was, or did say that this was a more inclusive process than COPS uh, before. And so I think that that hopefully is a good sign. And I think that that also kind of leads into the activism as well, because um, there were a lot of civil society members present. And I think that that only helped kind of bolster the voices of parties that were, have traditionally been marginalized throughout this process. Um, and so I, I personally found that to be really encouraging. I think that the it also may, in a certain sense, when I think about the, the processes of COP, which I had wrote in my uh, write-up, because I was following Article 6, you know, uh, there were times where certain parts of Article 6 just couldn't be agreed upon because folks were saying that it was too narrowly defined. And so I think having a, a space like COP28, uh, where folks come together and everybody has to feel like their voice is being heard sometimes. People weaponize that in order to not allow certain things to be passed. And so um, I'm interested in, in where Article 6 will ultimately end up. And, and I know um, throughout the process, whether that was in Article 6 or um, in the, the large uh, kind of plenary sessions, you know, you had parties kind of bringing that up, that some of this stuff was being uh, co-opted or weaponized um, by certain parties. And so I am very interested to see how they negotiate. Um, you know, this these overarching kind of policies that are going to govern um, for Article 6, uh, you know, the marketplace for carbon credits in a way that still, I guess, is inclusive of everyone's wants and needs and voices, um, because it's, it is something that needs to be figured out. Um, and then lastly, yeah, the only other thing I would say is that um, as far as uh, when I was engaging with different members of like the youth constituency, one thing that was present all the time was just the lack of um, certain representation, like representation from certain groups. So we look at, of course, um, folks that are in Palestine, um, you know, they weren't clearly not able to, to be attending COP, even though they are clearly, those are voices that we need to be hearing from. Um, we had people not represented from Haiti. We had people not represented from Congo, from Lebanon. So these are people that are living in these active war conflict zones um, who are facing very real threats every single day um, and are definitely being impacted by everything that's happening and these decisions that are being made, yet their voices are not present. And so I think in the future, uh, the whatever, whoever the presidents are for COP or the presidency happens to be for COP should consider how we include or how they include uh, the voices from from these youths from some of these areas because they are crucial and critical. And it is really sad to see these youth left out of these processes in these, these conversations. Thank you, Angel. Yes, that's so such an important point you make. And it's it's so horrible. I mean, as Hania mentioned also that the this COP happened in the shadow of this horrendous war and the other, I mean, other wars as well that are happening. Um, I mean, it's just which are having so many impacts in so many ways. And also the, the need for, for representation from people who are the most, who are being affected in this way is just so important. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll pass on to Barbara now. Um, yeah, I mean, this is my first COP, so obviously uh, I was impressed by the, the way it was organized, the, you know, the venue, everything was actually, it was very, very well run. Um, everyone got train passes and all that kind of thing. Um, what I found, you know, obviously uh, the hypocrisy of having it in Dubai wasn't lost, especially the lobbyists, you know, there was like drone 
um, you know, in the evening on the beach, you could see these kind of drones, like amazing kind of like fireworks almost out of drones, like sponsored by an oil company, you know. Um, but, I, you know, the desire to stop extracting fossil fuels from the ground wasn't really there. Um, you know, like you say, but the, the terminology was changed last minute. So that was all, um, you know, phasing out is um, kind of easy, makes it easier for, the, for them. Um, certainly, I find, you know, alongside the official parts of COP, I think one of the, the great things about going there is you just meet people, you meet people sitting outside, you meet people in the queue, you meet people just everywhere and everybody you meet, it's somebody who's doing something potentially extraordinary. And I think that's a, a big part of it, um, where you meet these people and you make contacts with people who possibly are doing, you know, I met someone who's doing something similar to what we were doing, um, the public participation, and she was doing it in uh, in South America and Bolivia, you know. So you meet people, and I think that's a, a really kind of a, a, a great part of it, you know, where then, you know, things happen when people meet up like that. And that's a, one of the main reasons of going as well. But yeah, obviously, um, it, it occurred in the shadow of what was happening in, or what is happening in Gaza. And there were some really powerful moments there. You know, there was humanity there at its best. Thanks, Barbara. Yeah, that's good to hear. And I also, uh, I found it interesting, Angel, what you said about there being somewhat more representation from some parts of the world. And uh, I was at two cops. I was at the Paris one and then the Glasgow one. And they both had some people from these developed countries, but it was not many. And you could see there were lacunas. And I think if that's improving even only a little, then that's obviously a positive thing. Sorry, the event that the youth held, one of the, the chaps, I think he was from, not from Tuvalu, I met someone from there, but somewhere from the Easter Islands, he said everyone from us, everyone from the kind of the smaller island groups most affected by climate change, we're going around with big headdresses on and really loud clothes, just so you can see us and we're visible. Mm, you know? Yeah. Compared to, normally we're not, this is our chance, this is our <laughs> chance to actually see us. And I thought that was very powerful as well. But I, I thought that was a really, because then you saw them and you did see them. They had the big headdresses on, they were just, because the rest of the time, nobody really cares about the people in Tuvalu or Rapa Nui or anything like that, you know. So that, that was that chance. But I mean, how long does that last? How long do they have to, to focus on them before people forget again? Mm, yeah, yeah, like out of sight, out of mind, kind of. Yeah, but yeah, that's that's a very clever tactic to make yourself yeah. as visible as possible. And, and um, I don't know if any of the others were at that event, but uh, what was your impression of it? I think Teresa was there, maybe, were you? The event you talked about, the, the youth event. What was that like? Was that interesting? Or? It was lots of youth events. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you talking about the one that our own representatives were involved in? Yeah, that's the one I meant, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think it was like a lot of um events that, and, and these are going on all the time, the side events that are going on all the time. That's where you find the people to connect with that are yeah. doing similar things in their community. You can learn from them. You can join your voices together to advocate together. Yes, it was brilliant to hear the youth voices there. And I'm so happy to see so many strong, powerful youth voices coming forward. And that is a place where you will see them. And it's also a place for me to be very, I get very emotional about it because there's these very strong youth that know what's going on. They can see what's going on. It's nearly worse than the youth that don't go to COP because they believe that something will happen, that there will be change. Whereas the youth that are at COP know how difficult it is to fight 
and know how much we have to do to get those little incremental changes. And to me, that breaks my heart for, for the youth. I think going back to the atrocities in Palestine, I think there was one of the most important workshops I went to was on the role of militarization in uh, emissions, which was unbelievable. The statistics are unbelievable. And that's before even going into what happens on the ground when you emit everything during a war, during battles. And I can only imagine what's come out of Gaza because it's been so intense and bombarding now for over three months that I, I just feel the connection was amazing because we all get it, you know, the activists get it, that it is the same system that has brought the world to its knees in climate that is bringing the system to its needs in inequality across the board. And that's behind nearly every conflict in this world is resources, is about the power, it's about the money, it's about greed, it's about control. They're all linked to what has brought humanity to where it is now. They're all linked to why the climate is the way it is. Colonization and militarization are the backbone of a lot of what's happened in this world. And they are the backbone to what's happened with industrialization of the world. And so the colonizers are responsible for what's happening and they just get free reign to run around and chat at COP, but they're not necessarily making any moves to change it. So that was my takeaway on the side events anyway. Thanks. Um, what did you all, what was it like in terms of atmosphere for things like protests? Uh, were you allowed to protest um, in some areas and not others? Or were you allowed to protest at all? Or what was it? What was that like? Uh, because we organized a few protests, you couldn't organize, you couldn't protest anywhere, but uh, there were designated spots that you could protest at. Um, and even, for example, when we were giving out the um, uh, when the youth groups were giving out the stickers, we obviously we had to. Well, it shouldn't be obviously we should have been allowed to, but it's it wasn't um, allowed. You have to get permission for that. So we would have to get permission for that. And then um, even for the protests at the designated spots, you're supposed to apply for that to have to get permission to be able to protest. And yeah, but there were some there was this one protest that we organized that was on the last day when the negotiations were just like the last day of the the evening of the last day. And that was very powerful. And that was that one was very emotional. And then there was this one protest that was, which is hold the line, where uh, activists and civil society they like they made lines and they held hands to the negotiation rooms. So the negotiators would have to walk in between the people holding their hands and standing to get to the negotiation rooms. And so that one was really that was really powerful. Um, and then the next day, uh, because COP it, it was ex extended one day, the negotiations kept going. They had put um, this red uh, red tape uh, over the like outside the negotiation rooms so that uh, we couldn't hold that protest again. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, Angel, did you want to add something to that? Well, Hania hit most of the points that I was going to say. Um, but what I, since being, this being my first cop, you know, I had a lot of questions about, you know, how, how the actions or requests for actions process work. And apparently, um, or not even apparently, this is true because <laughs> I'm sure this is true because why would folks lie to me, right? Uh, like the whole application process is actually all to do with the secretariat and like the UNF 
triple C processes. And so when you're filling out that paperwork, it's going uh, to the UNF triple C for them to approve or the secretariat. Um, and I thought that was pretty interesting, um, I guess, because in a way, like you are able to protest or have actions, but at the same time, it's kind of carefully like curated. Um, yeah, and that was that was just something very interesting to me where you have to put everything, you know, um, I, I remember people thinking about like, okay, are we going to do A, B, and C or X, Y, and Z? Because if we do A, like our paperwork has to explicitly state like what we're doing. And if we do one thing that's not in our paperwork, there could be repercussions. And so I, you know, there's a lot of pressure, I think, on the organizers and people whose names are on the line for kind of leading those actions in a way that I was not expecting. Um, and again, um, I was told that that's part of the UNFCCC's process. And I think that that's a lot of weight to put on, especially like young people, to say that you have to know all of these rules and you have to jump through all of these hoops um, at the same time where many young people are experiencing crises, at the same time where people are, you know, sleep deprived because they're doing these actions all day long or going into these negotiation rooms. And to, to me, you know, it was, it was really interesting to know that it's like if you don't put everything that you're going to do on your paper um, when you submit it, there may be some type of re repercussion for you where you might be debadged or you might be penalized in some way. Um, and I think that uh, the secretariat could probably benefit or would benefit from engaging more with youth on that process and just civil society in general. Um, because yeah, it just seems like a lot of just pressure on folks um, when when you know we say that there is actions that are allowed and we say that protests are allowed but then we put all of these heavy burdens on folks it kind of to me almost disincentivizes disincentivizes people from engaging um and so i would love to see that uh, more engagement with uh, civil society on like restructuring that process i wanted to add something so i have a few people that i knew and then i heard this from other people as well is so this is a un or unfcc ccc rule you can take names like countries names or people's names during protests and so for a few protests for example on palestine people started saying free palestine and there were from what i heard uh, it, the, some people that did get into trouble for that and one person that i know got debadged um not by the the un but just by their because uh, they had uh, the their government's badge uh, and they got debadged because they were asking too many questions and then the government the government didn't really explain why they did that so there are uh, repercussions and uh, you have to be and because i was part of uh, some of the protests that were organized a lot of the discussions uh, by people that are more experienced in the unf uh, ccc processes were just everybody if you came up with an idea as uh, Angel already said that if you came up with an idea, there were like quite literally deliberations for some time on whether we could do that um, and whether it would be how would it, how it would be perceived um, and whether it was whether we would get in trouble for that or not. So when you are organizing or trying to speak truth to power, it's very unfortunately it has to be very controlled and very um, it's very limited. And the UAE is not a country where protesting is very common. So yeah, the, the some of the protests were historic in that way. 
Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's that's all very interesting, and you know, it does sound like an intimidating process to apply for this. And um, yeah, and with all these, um, oh, the whole politics of names and naming countries and so on is so complex and fraught. It's a strange world. Uh, I wondered if any of you had a final thing you'd like to say, or any final comments you'd like to make, just to wrap up. Something that I've learned is the role, like I said, of civil society, and while. I went over very naive, you know, or didn't know much about it the first time. I've come to see the the SOCAN, the Climate Action Network, is very involved in the negotiations, very involved within their own countries and their own continents with the negotiators. So the, their feedback is kind of really important. And being involved in the Climate Action Network, which is, you know, it's an international organization that has its own staff and all that sort of thing, I think is really important for civil society to be engaged with them so that there's two-way communications, there's more eyes on the system, more people are able to filter out what's happening. You have more insight and you have greater access to knowledge. I, I think being involved in that wider network now, I know the Fridays for Future, you know, the, the youth have their big movement like that, who, I mean, they're, they're phenomenal with watching the negotiations and being involved in the negotiations. But for the rest of us dinosaurs that have been involved for a while, I think that the Climate Action Network offers a good platform for that to happen. And I would like to see more engagement from Ireland with CAN and more um, staff allocated to be involved in the working groups that, that are in CAN so that we have um, more feet on the ground when we get to COP, but also know what we're talking about for the whole duration of it you know I, I go there I spend the first few days catching up on what everything that's gone on for the past year whereas whoever's going there should really be engaged with what's going on for the year leading up to it and previous years so that's my learning from that as a way forward for what we need to do in Ireland. Thanks yeah it's interesting that you mentioned that um, I know that Can Europe recently have become much more interested in economic system change and I hope Can International have that I imagine they probably do. They have that focus as well. And so going beyond uh, the kind of more superficial things that can be done about climate and looking at the deeper roots and which are linked, of course, to colonization, as people have been saying today and and militarization. So and it's another thing that, uh, that you shared with me recently, Teresa, which is really interesting, is that the can International are working on finance and the financial system. And again, I just think that's super important. So it's great that they're doing that. Um, anybody else have a, a final comment? Yeah, um, I just wanted to say that a lot of people uh, this time around, and I think last time as well, uh, the sentiment, at least among, at least from what I got out of talking to people, is that a lot of people are very disappointed in these conferences, as am I. And a lot of people are taking they're not putting in any hope in cop anymore which is understandable uh and there's many people that are boycotting boycotting cop as well um and which which of course i understand that as well but i think that um regardless of the hopelessness that a lot of people feel uh, i think it is important for us to be a part uh, of these conferences and of these events because uh, even if, uh, you know, the change that we are have been advocating for relentlessly for the past many years, 
uh, is not uh, happening in the way that we need it to happen it is still important for our voices to be present at these conferences and for our voices to reach the world and for us to tell the world uh, what is happening in these spaces from the perspective of uh, young people and and marginalized people and people that have been affected the most by the climate crisis and that uh, you need people at these conferences uh, fighting fighting back and putting pressure even if what we see is that that pressure is not giving much result but we must continue that fight uh, even if it is a fight that uh, you know we we uh, aren't going to win most times unfortunately yeah I'm like kind of because it was my first one I'm still somewhat naively treading it is quite an overwhelming thing this because there is so much on and uh, I hope to go this year as well and I want to be more kind of like a snag list beforehand as well to see what everybody's doing there and just from here as well that there's sort of transparency and so that would be my thing that I and I'd like to have something that I can report on that's happening there contribute in some way like that so that's kind of what I'm hoping for the next one but yeah there's a lot happening and then once it's over nobody talks about it and that's very difficult to keep the momentum going like um, I saw saw George Monbiot he said there was only two decent cops and he said the rest of them were just a waste of time so there's been 28 now you know it was it was a great experience and definitely one I'd like to to build on. Thanks Barbara I was thinking as well about what we want to do going forward about cops and yeah maybe we can bring cap and share in somehow. I'd love to get involved and and just kind of you know it's kind of making an impact that lasts beyond it I suppose. Yeah, I would just say um, one of the things that I walked away from COP thinking about is whose role is it? And and like whose role is it to labor throughout these negotiations? And I think traditionally, you know, the idea was that even I'm sure uh, the UN had this idea when they set all of this up, that it would be the negotiators, right? It, it's their role to get all these things right and and to do all this labor. But what I witnessed was that there is a lot of laboring happening by civil society. And I think that we need to honor that and recognize that and understand that like if civil society is going to continue to to labor through this process and ensure or try to ensure that negotiators are thinking through some of these things more holistically and more equitably, then um, there should be more sharing of power. And one of the things that I constantly heard throughout the process was, uh, especially by young people, was that it's hard for young people to get delegation or delegate badges, party badges. And it's even harder, even if young people do have party badges, to really kind of advocate for certain things. Um, Because one, either their party doesn't necessarily fully align with the things that the young people want to advocate on, or two, they really haven't had any type of formal training, right, in in negotiation. So they're kind of still just observing. Um, And so while I think that it's great, to invite youth into these spaces or civil society into these spaces, I would love to see more intentional engagement. And I think, as Teresa was saying, like having this process be a year-round thing. That was Hanya Imran, Barbara McCarthy, Teresa O'Donoghue, and Angel Smith speaking about their experiences at the COP28. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tune in to our next one at the end of February. And also, please spread the word about our work. Many thanks to Hanya, Barbara, Teresa and Angel for their participation. 
Agus Marisk Nach, the Lisha Kelly for her nice music on the harp. <laughs> 